Marked Cards Farewells, My Trip to See Catania The air filling the Baroque-styled streets surrounding Catania's Stadio Angelo Massimino is thick with fumes of tear gas and smoke. Palermo's Davide Di Michele has earned a famous victory in the Derby di Sicilia, much to the chagrin of the Catania Ultras. But while the battle on the field is lost, the war in the streets has just begun. The Catania fans vent their fury at the police. Homemade bombs, flares, firecrackers, pipes, rocks, pieces of sink and even a scooter rain down on the authorities. The cacophony of explosions, helicopters and yells almost drown out the approaching ambulance sirens. Amidst a maelstrom, a policeman lies fatally injured. Allegedly struck by a broken sink and a missile which exploded in his vicinity, he would later die from his injuries in hospital. The officer's name was Filippo Ricciti, and the events of February the 2nd, 2007, remain one of the most ignominious in Il Calcio's history. Life on the Corve would never be the same again. So goes Richard Hall and Luca Hodges Ramon's introduction to Catania's Ultras groups on the Gentleman Ultras blog. So, nothing for me to worry about then on my trip. Good stuff. Danger could theoretically be my middle name, were it not already Thomas. Although anything could theoretically be my middle name if my parents hadn't played it safe. However, rather than laughing in the face of peril, I wilt faster than a basil leaf in the oven. On the odd occasion I've done a Portuguese, taking the bus without a ticket, I've spent the entire time nervously staring at bus stops for fear an inspector might be lurking, ready to pounce. So, just in case you haven't got the idea yet, I'm not all that big on thrills and spills. A few people had told me that those were exactly what I could expect when venturing down to Sicily to watch Catania play, but I was more worried about flying near an active volcano rather than the people I'd find on the ground near it. That said, I was quite looking forward to this trip, as apart from the tedious travelling, it'd be nice to visit Catania and get a bit of a change of scenery for a few days. Not to mention stuffing my face with cannoli, arancini and granite. Apart from eating, of course, my main goal was to watch Catania and speak to some locals. One notable local, but who's not got much chat about him, is Uliotru, a statue of an elephant in the centre of town. He, for it is a he, he has stone testicles, is the symbol of the town, which may not be the most obvious animal to associate with Sicily, but there you go. Dwarf elephants were natives during the Paleolithic period, and have even been credited with being the origin of the Cyclops myth, due to the large hole in their skulls, which most likely freaked out the early Greek settlers who dug them up. The football club's badge is an old-fashioned leather football, a shield and a wee elephant popping out from behind it. Which, as far as badges go, is pretty cool in my book. And you're listening to my book, so trust me, it's pretty cool. Unfortunately, by the time May comes round, it looks like Catania will be packing their trunks and saying goodbye to the Serie A circus, as at the time of my visit, and I'm groping desperately for a positive spin here, the only way was up, bottom of the table as they were. This will bring an end to their longest stay in Serie A, after they escaped up out of Serie B in 2006. Is escape the right word, though? The relegation zone is often referred to as a trapdoor, conjuring up images of falling into darkness, monsters and 80s kids' TV. These are things that are best not contemplated, although I did quite like the TV show, 
But conventional wisdom tells us that relegation equals bad times. Is that always the case though? Should we fear it so much? Every year, X number of teams are relegated from every league, giving cameramen the chance to show children crying into their team's scarf on the last day. Every season, we, as fans, enter into the unspoken agreement that this year might be it for us. We may quickly forget this and become bloated on the rich pickings and glamour that playing in whichever league it is gives us, but that doesn't change the fact. In Serie A, at least, every season starts with any three of potentially a dozen or so teams facing an arduous season topped off with a drop. To paraphrase Benjamin Franklin, only three things are certain in life. Death, taxis and relegation. We might try to put them off for as long as possible, but eventually at least two of the three will catch up with everyone. But is relegation such a bad thing? Should we endure sleepless nights, fretting and crying about it? From a financial and prestige level, yes, absolutely. From a punter's perspective though, watching your team slog through a season isn't often much fun, while a season in a lower league can be a good palate cleanser. Of course, it's easy for me to say this here, but I remember the 1997-98 season when Hibs were relegated, curse your eyes, Shell Olufsen, and the impotent despair that filled up in me, along with a sinking feeling of dread, but that was most likely down to the halftime pie. It's darkest just before dawn, as they say, and after the rawness of the breakup with the top division had healed over, life got easier, so much so that memories of the following season's quick fling are bathed in a warm light of glory. Coming back up to the Premier League after a season of being the gubbers rather than the gubbies, we felt refreshed and ready to go once again. That feeling quickly dissipated, of course. After all, we were still Hibs. So this is what Catania have in store. It's by no means guaranteed that they'll enjoy next season and bounce back up again, which, as uh, history tells us, was the case. They struggled and only just avoided relegation and got themselves into a bit of match-fixing scandal to boot. There have been another couple of teams like this in the past few years, but the last thing to die is hope. So, Catanese, when the worst-case scenario comes true, hold on to hope. They'll hate me saying this, but their Sicilian neighbours Palermo would be the th example to cling on to, as after being relegated in 2003, they popped back up again from Serie B come the season's end. The fans go by the nickname of Etnei, as the city sits in the shadow of Mount Etna and Rosazzurri after their pinkish-red and sky-blue striped strips. I'd like to perhaps erroneously consider myself, among many other things, to have a reasonable eye for fashion. People often stop, point and stare at me in the street. This combination of colours, for me, is a bit jarring, but there you go. Chosen to represent the red fire from Etna and the blue of the sky, they are certainly distinctive. The venue for this match was the Stadio Angelo Massimino, named after the ex-president who died in a car crash in 1996. In many of the interviews I did in preparation for this, he was referred to as Presidentissimo, which combines the noun Presidente with the superlative suffix Issimo, just as Bellissimo means really beautiful or Buonissimo is really good, we can understand that Massimino was very president. Of course, that doesn't mean anything when translated literally, but if we adopt the occasional Italian disregard for rules, we can arrive at the conclusion that Massimino was a great president. This in itself is quite a rare phenomenon. Presidents are most typically tolerated at best. 
Even the current incumbent, Paul Virenti, seems to be relatively popular, as the sign over the tobacconist near my hotel bore the message Grazie above his face, with a capital A in the Grazia. And that wasn't a typo. The A was capitalised to signify the team's ascension to Syria under his stewardship. I've already written that I was more concerned about Mount Etna erupting during my visit than the locals, although I wasn't entirely relaxed about them either, to be honest. A friend of a friend knows people from Catania's Corva Nord, and it had been suggested that I could speak to them. Now, normally if this happens, I'm given the phone number or email address of the other party and get in touch with them that way. This time, though, I met the mutual friend for a beer beforehand, and he explained to me that the guys down in Sicily weren't particularly keen to speak to me. That's not a problem, of course. I don't oblige people to answer my questions, and the questions I ask aren't too prying or invasive of their privacy. I simply ask about their careers as fans, and so on and so forth. I was told to wait a couple of days to see if they'd get back to me, but in the meantime, if we were to meet, I wasn't to A. Speak about religion B. Blaspheme or C. Look at their women uh, I appreciate that the middleman was looking out for me and telling me these things so that I wouldn't land myself in hot water. However, as a rule, I try not to speak to strangers about religion. Blaspheming in Italy can sound a bit forced and put on from foreigners, or at least I think so. And I try not to look at other people's girlfriends or wives, as that's just not cricket. As it was, I never got a call from them, so these warnings were unnecessary. It would have been interesting to speak to them, as I was led to believe that they were people to know from the Corva. But hey-ho, it wasn't to be. C'est la vie, as they don't say here. As luck would have it, I got in contact with people from a fans forum, Calcio Catania, and they were fantastically helpful. My thanks go to the many people who replied to me, and in particular to one of the organisers of the site, Vincenzo, who not only encouraged members to reply, but also took me out for breakfast, to have a chat, and to explain all things Catania. They say that people in the south of Italy are more friendly than those in the north, and he was certainly very accommodating and kind. While the match was to be played at the Massimino, previously known as the Cibali, President Pulverente had recently bought land and announced construction of a new stadium. This more or less coincided with announcement by Serie B's governing body of the availability of up to 100 million euros to any clubs in their league to help in the planning, renovating and building of new stadiums or training centres. This money would be given with certain benefits attached, but to be clear was not a grant. This announcement sparked conspiracy theorists into action with many suggesting that Catania would aim to deliberately get relegated. This, if true, would seem remarkable, as after all, it's not a free 100 million euros, but more of a hugely inflated student loan. People do love a good conspiracy theory, though, so that idea seemed to grow legs of its own on some forums online. However, the Etnei, who I spoke to in person, mostly shot it down, rightly pointing out that President Polverenti is a businessman, and deliberately tanking one season and speculating on the future is not sound business practice. Then again, given that football isn't perhaps the best business to invest in, in conjunction with a fit and proper persons test, it might not be such a bad idea to conduct a psychological exam on anyone wanting to buy a football team. Either way, the day to leave the Massimino Cibali will be a tough one, but not necessarily a bad thing, as my various interviewees told me. Let's start off with Luca. 
My first memory of the stadium is of Catania beating Perugia 1-0, and it was love at first sight. There were ten minutes of injury time, and from then on I knew that no one would ever give us anything, and that we'd have to spit blood to get a result. I'd be happier if the older, current, stadium was demolished, and the new one built in its place. Of course, on the day that it closes, there will be a lot of tears. I spent all of my Sundays there as a child, and there are a lot of memories tied to that stadium. Marcello told me this. It was nil-nil against Spal, and I was 12 the first time I went to the stadium. My dad and I were in the terraces, which is now the Corva Sud, and he shouted at the referee all the match. Leaving the Massimino will be a bit like leaving your parents' house before you get married, but it'll always have a place in my heart for the experiences I've had that are linked to Catania Calcio. That said, a new stadium is an important requirement, both for the city and the club. It would give it its own place without having to be tied to any politics or the local council, which only cause headaches. Here's Mirko's memory. My first memory is of when I was about four or five, when Catania were in Serie B and my dad had a season ticket in the Tribuna. More than that though, when I was eight, I was lucky enough to be in Rome for the playoff against Cremonese for promotion to Serie A. Even if I was only eight at the time, I'll never forget the stands in the Olimpico packed with Rossazzurri. It's a unique, amazing and indelible memory. Having its own stadium is fundamental for a football club. I was over the moon to hear that President Pulverenti had bought the land for a new stadium, because it means that beyond this year's probable relegation, the club intends to invest in the future of Catania. With all due respect to Presidentissimo Massimino, the stadium was always the Cibali for me. When it's gone, a part of my past will be gone too, tied in with so many emotions that it'll inevitably be a sad day. And finally, Enrico. In November 2004, I was 16. I'm not from Catania, so for my first game I had to go with my dad, but he's not a fan. It was against Genoa, and the feelings that hit me when I was inside, with fireworks, flares and chants from the Corva all around me, were like those described by Nick Hornby in Fever Pitch. For the development of the club and its objectives, a new stadium is a defining goal. The Massimino holds some of my best memories, so obviously the last match there will be full of sadness for what it's meant to me. I'd read and been told before coming down that the Etne were a hot crowd. This normally means that they don't mess about when it comes to their team, as the opening quote from the Gentleman Ultra should have tipped you off about. I'd heard about what had happened on that day in 2007, but I'd never really looked into it. Known as the Caso Raciti, the Raciti case, for it was he who died, a quick scan through newspapers made it seem like an open and shut case. When I was down in Catania, though, some locals suggested otherwise, but I've gone a little more into detail on that in the following chapter, so won't repeat myself here. So yes, I was expecting a good crowd. My ticket was in the Corva Nord, which was sold out for the visit of Juventus. I went early doors, and the streets were filling up a couple of hours before kick-off. Inside, there weren't that many people yet, except for in the Gabia, where the visiting fans were housed. In the spirit of welcoming these hardy travellers to Sicily, they were greeted with a hearty rendition of Juve, Juve, va fanculo, Juve, Juve, go fuck yourselves, which was met with a response of the equally witty Seribi, Seribi, Seribi. 
This, in turn, caused a spontaneous eruption of hand gestures from those around me, and La madre juventina è una putana. Juve's fans, mothers, are whores. If you can't beat them, join them, seemed to be the motto of the day, so the Juve fans replied with similar gestures to those that had just been aimed at them. To this, a rather corpulent man near me shouted, Go back to Palermo! This is perhaps the worst thing someone could be accused of. No, not of being from Palermo, of course, although some Catanese might disagree with me on that one. Rather, of being from City A and following a team from City B. Supporting your local team has quite a lot of resonance here, as in other countries, and only the most dedicated or deranged fan would travel from Turin, way up in the north, to Catania, way down in Sicily, for a televised Sunday night match. It wasn't even all that crucial a match in the grand scheme of things, as the two teams were separated by every other team in Serie A. No, rather the Juventini had come up out of the woodwork to see their team in town, so most of the travelling fans were Sicilians. This call-and-response of insults between sets of fans continued for much of the match too, although the Juventini were more organised in supporting their team, and as far as hand-clapping and flag-waving goes, were pretty well drilled. The Etne around me, on the other hand, were by and large pretty subdued, but given the season they'd had up to that point, it was understandable. The game itself wasn't all that much to write home about, and nor was it a glaring example of the gulf in points difference between the two teams. Catania showed fighting grit and flew into tackles, but lacked any cutting edge. Juventus, meanwhile, weren't all that threatening either, and it wasn't until the second half that they got the winning goal through Carlos Tevez. That woke the hosts up a bit, who then could have equalised, had a striker been lurking in to tap a pass from Barrientos that trickled along the goal line. It was the kind of chance that even Sandra Redknapp could have scored. The ball pleaded to be put into the net so much. To add insult to injury, Juventus demonstrated their superiority, both on the pitch and off, when they introduced Fernando Llorente as a substitute. Although he has one thing in common with Catania's players, he speaks Spanish being as he is Spanish, there the similarities end, as unlike them, he's really good. Catania have a total of 14 South Americans, 12 of which are Argentine. Why such an unusually high number, you may ask? A good question it is too, with perhaps part of the answer lying in the office of the Vice President, Pablo Cosentino. A former agent, he is also Argentinian, and responsible for the arrival in Italy of many of his countrymen, including the Catania players Pablo Barrientos, Lucas Castro and Sebastian Leto. It makes sense that having him there would lead the club to exploiting his knowledge of his homeland to bolster the squad, a field they've already had success in before, with players such as Pablo Ledesma, Maxi Lopez, Ezequiel Scalotto, he who attracted the Atlantini's ire in Sassuolo, and Matias Silvestre. While I was making the long trip down to Sicily, I wondered if this huge number of players all hailing from another country could have affected the makeup of the team. Team DNA is an entirely intangible and ethereal concept, but could it have been affected, for better or worse? Here's Marcello again. As I see it, the Argentinians haven't changed the makeup of the team, but are merely an addition to it. The DNA is only Catanian, Rosazzurro and La Maglia. Probably not his real name, but Elephant told me this. South Americans have made up the backbone of our team for the last few years. Just the same as Italians or other foreigners, 
They're players who defend Catania's colours, and so I don't think our DNA's changed. Here's Mirko's ideas on the subject. It's a difficult question, particularly now when Catania are sitting at the bottom of the table. We live in a society that's becoming ever more mixed, so it's inevitable that that would have repercussions in football too. All the same, I'd really like to see young Sicilian players get given the chance to stake a claim in the squad. I don't think the DNA has changed, because Argentinians come and go. Our essence stays the same. As a comparison, if you take away the bodywork of a Ferrari, but keep the engine, it's still a Ferrari. Enrico told me. You can definitely see a South American influence, and it can be a benefit in the way it brings the group closer together. However, I'd prefer there to be more Italians, and all the better if they were Sicilians or Southerners, because it seems to me that not all foreigners are really able to get what some games mean to people from Catania. And finally, Luca. Up until last year, I thought it was a good thing, because South Americans are said to be hot-blooded, much like us. I've changed my mind this year, though. Not because of our results, but because of our players' attitudes, which I haven't liked at all. That said, this is a nanus horribilis, and I'm hoping it will be quickly forgotten. The feeling of unhappiness with our current lot was evident from my fellow spectators. Perhaps this is the reason that the hot crowd I'd been expecting turned out to be pretty quiet, really. There were few songs, few flags, few flares. Given the hole they found themselves in, this was understandable, but still, I was hoping for a little more. Instead, it was as deflated as a kid's birthday balloon the day after the party. In the days before this match, I'd broken up with my girlfriend, and while I was down in Sicily, I half expected her to pack up and move out before I'd get back to Genoa. It was the end of the road for us, and in the last six months, she'd shown remarkable patience with me while I disappeared every other weekend. Just as the two of us had to face up to a painful change and a less certain future, so did the Itnei. Their patience for the players wearing their beloved strip, however, had long since moved out. Luca's dislike for his team's attitude was echoed by others, as when Juve scored in the second half, the fans in the Corva Sud, up the opposite end of the pitch from me, had had enough, and unfurled a banner reading La nostra fede non retrocede, bastardi mercenari, which is, our faith won't go down, mercenary bastards. In the first half, meanwhile, I'd seen a banner in the Corva near me calling for Ne presidenti, ne calciatori, ne allenatori, solo calcio. No chairman, no players, no coaches, just football. Which seems a little ambitious, but gave an indication of the mood in the air. When the final whistle arrived, the Corva was jolted into life with songs and chants. More than anything, it was a sign of defiance, a raging against the dying light. Fans can be fickle, fans can be horrible, and they can be remarkably delusional. But to not see the writing on the wall here would take a level of denial that a jungle-based Japanese soldier would be proud of. The day after, I didn't have much to do except meet Vincenzo from the fans forum for breakfast and a chat. That done, I made my way for the long but pretty easy trip home. But wait, it wasn't. In an effort to keep costs down as much as possible, I'd booked trains from Genoa to Rome, then flights from Rome to Catania. Getting down to Sicily had been a piece of cake, but the return journey was about as pleasurable as eating a cake of soap. Upon my arrival at the airport in Catania, I made my way up to the check-in desk, 
and offered the lady there my passport and reservation number. She typed away for a moment, then again, and then again. Looking up at me, she said, I'm sorry you don't appear to be on this flight. I said that I didn't understand. She then told me this time in English, I'm sorry you don't appear to be on this flight. I explained that no, I had understood the Italian words the first time round, but I was having difficulty in grasping the concept. What did she mean by, I wasn't on the flight? I'd booked the ticket, and it was definitely that day I was travelling. She suggested I speak to the people at the ticket office to try to get to the bottom of the situation. That I did, and they gave me a phone number to call to speak to the airline. Being lazy and already a bit stressed that I was stuck on an island with no ticket to get off, when the number gave me the option of pressing 1 for Italian or 2 for English, I opted for the latter. This made the menu go back to the start, and 30 seconds later I was being invited to make the same choice again. My eyes starting to cloud up with a reddish mist, I again chose option 2. Déjà vu can be a pleasantly confusing experience, but this time, no, not. I then found myself leaning against a wall in Catania Airport, listening to a recorded message asking me for a third time which language I'd like to, evidently not, have my call in. After one more spin round the options message, I gave up and pressed 1. The line rang immediately, and I was speaking to someone in Italian within 15 seconds. She reiterated that I wasn't on the flight, as the company had cancelled my booking and refunded my money. Well, that's just bloody fantastic. However, I had actually wanted to take the flight. To make matters worse, at the end of the call, she asked if everything was okay. I patiently explained to her that no, nothing was fucking okay. I was on an island, had booked a flight, and was now being told I wasn't on it. So no, okay, it wasn't. I had to buy another ticket for the same plane at twice the cost, and eventually made my way back to the check-in desk. There, the lady said that the flight was 30 minutes late. Although I had quite a convoluted trip back home, that was okay, as I had two hours to get from Rome's Fiumicino airport to the train station. 30 minutes less in Rome would just mean less faffing about, and hey, at least I was on the flight now. As God, Allah, or whoever was testing me wished so, these 30 minutes became 45 minutes, and these 45 minutes became one hour. At this point, my blood was starting to boil again, as the train I was booked on was the last one between Rome and Genoa that day. Here's a laugh. I'd booked it in advance to save a bit of money and to make sure that I'd get a seat. While sitting in the departure lounge in Catania, I'd check the timetable of the train from the airport to the station. The last train I could get that would bring me there on time was at 5.38. At 5.30, the plane doors opened after landing back on the mainland. At 5.32, I was on the shuttle bus to the terminal. And at 5.34, I was sprinting through the airport like I was going to miss the last expensive train of the day. Sadly, I didn't know where the airport's train station was, so my running wasn't the most efficient. And it's a good thing I didn't have to pass through any passport controls. As at 5.37, I was miming to the guy by the train that I needed a ticket. My breath was gone, my lungs trying to escape up out of my throat, and my left arm was starting to hurt. Ticket bought, I collapsed onto the Fiumicino Express that would get me to Termini in time for a cigarette in my train home. It was probably because of the lack of oxygen in my brain that I made this assumption. And you know what they say about people that assume, don't you?
the Fiumicino Express is a direct train between the airport and the train station, but on this day of shite days, it ended up being 10 minutes late. How that's possible when a journey of 30 minutes with no stops between, I still try not to contemplate. But as it was, this delay eliminated any notion I had of getting a sandwich before my train. I had so little time that I was forced to run along the platforms of Rome Termini Station, gulping down puffs of a cigarette and liberally punching anyone small enough and foolish enough to get in my way. Ugh, all's well that ends well though. And nearly a minute before it pulled out of the station, I dragged myself into my seat, closed my eyes and prayed that I'd get home without killing anyone. Yeah, basta.